Let us hear God's word from 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now, may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness, because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Now, um, we have come to the conclusion of chapter 1, and in many ways, it brings us to the conclusion of 1 Samuel in this way. 1 Samuel, of course, started with the ask theme. Remember, Hannah asked for a son, and God answered her request and gave her Samuel. Samuel, of course, was the last judge, and uh, he transitioned Israel from God's intended civil and religious society to a monarchy. And so in chapter 8, we see Israel asking for a king. And God punished this sinful request by giving them a king. And Saul, of course, he looked kingly, but he acted like a pagan king. He disobeyed God. He ignored Samuel. He killed the priests. He sought to kill his political rival. He visited a necromancer, among other things. And, of course, he ended by killing himself. Well, as early as chapter 13 in 1 Samuel, God judged Saul and said that someone else would take over as king, and it would not be his son, not anyone in his line. And so in chapter 16, then, we saw David anointed by Saul. And the rest of 1 Samuel then, or did I didn't say that right, by Samuel. And so the rest of 1 Samuel uh, is about uh, David running from Saul for the most part. Well, we started 2 Samuel, and it's about 15 years later now after David was anointed. And as we have seen, <clears throat> the author has been very concerned to prove that David is the good guy. Uh, we have seen uh, David um, and uh, how he was running from Saul at the end of 1 Samuel, and he would not kill Saul, and then he didn't kill Saul. When Saul did die, he was uh, 100 miles or more away. Um, <clears throat> and then we have seen that David uh, did not hire anyone to kill Saul. The Samalekite brought the king's crown and armband in the story of assisting Saul with a suicide. And so David then responded by executing the Amalekite for killing God's anointed. And um, 
This, of course, was consistent with David's refusal to kill Saul when he had opportunity. And the other main thing that we saw in chapter 1, then, is that David mourned Saul's death. And uh, not only for that moment and having the fasting and so forth, but he wrote the lament and made everyone learn it. He emphasized good things about Saul, and he mourned, yes, for Saul, but especially for the loss of his best friend, uh, Jonah, or excuse me, Jonathan. And so now as we turn to chapter 2, in a sense, we put all that behind us. Obviously, it's the backstory. Obviously, we're going to see things that are based upon some of the things that we've talked about. But in a very real sense, we are turning from this David is going to become king and all that was associated with that now to David becoming king. And we're moving forward. We're looking forward, you might say. And so because of reasons like this, and plus what we're going to see even in these next few chapters, um, uh, the author, I, and the more and more I, I study this and, and, and um, investigate this question, the more I think that the author did write these chapters before David was anointed uh, in Jerusalem as king. And uh, so he's trying to, to build up David, basically. <clears throat> now, one last comment in this way. Saul obviously has been the key figure uh, up to this point, uh, but David takes over in that way. In fact, David is mentioned over 1,100 times in the Old Testament. And second is Moses at about 750 and so David clearly is the focal point, as important as Moses was. <clears throat> it's the son of David that is the Messiah, the true king. It's not the son of Moses. And uh, so one last thing in that way. So with all that in mind then, look at how verse 1 begins. Verse 1, it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, where shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. And so two main things that tie together everything that I've just said here this evening. And the first is those first few words. And the New King James says it, it happened after this. Uh, the Hebrew is even more explicit, but this captures the idea for us. Hey, <clears throat> we're moving on now, is a, a way we could paraphrase this. All this about Saul's in the background now. We're moving forward. Now, we're going to see Ishbosheth, and we're going to see other things like that. But, but Saul is now in uh, the rearview mirror, you might say, and we're going to transition forward. And the second thing we see here right from the beginning is the ask theme again. We started 1 Samuel with it, and now we see it again. The New King James translates it, uh, it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord. <clears throat> but that's the same word, to ask. He asked Yahweh what he should do. And so you have Hannah asking for a son, God gives Samuel. You have Israel asking for a king, they give, uh, God gives uh, Saul. And now here David is asking what he should do. Now the contrast, David is like Hannah in this sense. He is not like Israel. He is not like Saul, even. 
All right, so as we know, since chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, David's already been anointed as king. But he's been hiding in Philistia, and of course Saul has been ruling. Uh, David has been considered an outlaw, according to Saul. Um, But now all that's done. Saul is dead, and David is ready to move forward. But note, um, he doesn't just presume. He doesn't just act on his own. David likely knew uh, that merely marching into Gibeah would not go over so well. Uh, Riding in with the crown and armband of Saul could result in an arrow in his heart or a uh, stone from one of the left-handed Benjamite slingers in his temple or forehead like he had done with Goliath. And so likely with some wisdom in this way, (laughs) um, David then asked the Lord what he should do. How should I proceed? And so he asked, first of all, if he should go to a city in Judah. All right, now, uh, a number of things, uh, additional things here in this verse. First of all, David, as we know, is the son of Judah. And so it makes sense he would address uh, uh, the people of Judah at this point. He was married to two women from Judah. And, of course, as we saw in 1 Samuel, uh, he helped out the cities of Judah, especially in the south, and would help them with their enemies. And we saw in chapter 30 that he helped them with the uh, Amalekite raiders and, and so forth. And uh, remember, David and his men wandered in this uh, very area and so forth. So it makes sense that he would go there. But again, notice he doesn't presume on it. He still wants God's guidance. So you have the wisdom, you know, it's not really a good idea to go to Saul's hometown right now. And yes, okay, it would make sense to go to somewhere in Judah. And yet, he asks the Lord what to do. Do you see his humility? Do you see what is most important to him? Not his status, oh, now I'm king, you know, I'm going to do what I want now. No, he wants to follow the Lord. And this is true for a king, and it is certainly true for us every day. Notice that David doesn't ask, should I become king now? That is assumed. But he does ask, what is the best first step? And so there is some, um, can you say, assurance, some confidence here on David's part, and yet at the same time he wants to follow where the Lord leads. And so Dave, uh, excuse me, God answers David's question and simply says, yes, go to Judah. And then he asks which city, and God says, Hebron. <clears throat> All right, now a few things in the, this regard. Um, notice that these questions are basically yes or no type questions. There are no extended answers given to us here in verse 1. And so this suggests to us, that David did not receive a word from the prophets, but rather they used the Urim and Thummim to answer, uh, to ask, and then receive the answer to these questions. Let's turn back to 1 Samuel 22 here just a moment. <clears throat> and you recall, um, at the same time, David had 400 men, um, but one of them we see is in verse 5. Now the prophet Gad said to David, 
And at this point, we're not concerned about what Gad said, but right, David had a prophet with him, Gad. And as we've said, it's quite possible that Gad wrote what we are reading at this point here at the end of 1 Samuel and into 2 Samuel. If you turn over to chapter 23 and verse 6, Now it happened when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Calah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. So remember Saul and and, uh, the murder of the priests and and Nob, and, and Abiathar escapes, and he comes with the ephod. And so as we have this uh, section here then in 2 Samuel 2, it sure sounds like that David would have been using the Urim and Thummim. So most likely David and Abiathar were part of this. Maybe Gad was there. Maybe others were there. Uh, remember that the ephod had the breast piece and it had the little pocket in it and they put the Urim and Thummim in it. Uh, back in chapter 23, as well as in 1 Samuel 30, we have, again, some clues that that's probably what they used to ask uh, direction from the Lord. Um, you may recall from what I've said before that the Urim and Thummim were kind of like dice, but not with numbers on it like we would have, but light and dark sides. And depending on how they were rolled and so forth, they would give a kind of uh, answer there. But they typically then would only ask yes or no questions. So, The first question he asked, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? That's clearly a yes or no question, right? And then the second one can be asked that way. Should I go up, uh, or excuse me, where shall I go up? And maybe they said also, you know, Hebron versus Bethlehem or something like that. And the answer could have been given. Obviously, it doesn't say specifically that they use this, but it, it certainly leads in this direction. But whatever the case, no one now can question what David is doing. Now, people will anyway, but God told David what to do. David wanted direction. The people now know that God answered him in this way. Go to Judah and go specifically to Hebron. God said so. So if anybody's going to argue over it, they need to take it up with the Lord. All right, now... Let's say a few words about Hebron. Uh, This is one of the most important cities in all of Israel historically. Uh, uh, It's an important city all the way back to the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember Caleb settled there after the conquest. Uh, Here if you uh, have your maps here or uh, a different map, um, find where Jerusalem is on your map. I'm using the land of the 12 tribes one here. And you see Bethlehem just a few miles to the south and keep going a little bit south and west and you get to Hebron. Now in this particular map, it's not just a dot. You have the circle with the dot. And that's an indication that this was one of the cities of refuge. And so Hebron was a Levitical city. So one of the 48, but it was a city of refuge as well. One of the six. Remember there were three on the east side of the Jordan and three on the west side of the Jordan. And so this is one of, if not the most important city, certainly in Judah, and in some ways you could argue at this point, even in all of Israel. It had the highest peak in Judah at 3,050 feet. Jerusalem is only about 2,500 feet above sea level. Um, and so, <clears throat> very, very significant. 
Add to that that Abigail was from Carmel, it was only about seven miles south of this, and Ahinoam is from Jezreel, not the one up north, but this Jezreel was one of the suburbs, if you will, of Hebron, one of the smaller villages that surrounded it. All right, now, a couple more points here briefly. Um, From what we have found through archaeological studies, Hebron was about 12 acres in size. Now think about that. It's not that big. Even Harrisville would spread out farther and wider than that. About 12 acres. But it did have a dozen springs, uh, over a dozen, and so it was very well watered and, uh, again, up on the, uh, the mountain peak and so forth. So very significant with several towns and villages. <clears throat> now, also I want you to reflect on this point. <clears throat> In chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, <clears throat> right, the Philistines had made inroads into Israel. And they had come all the way... Uh, to Gilboa and even to the Jordan River, right? Beth Shon is not that far from the Jordan and so forth where they hung Saul's body. And so um, they had at least um, some influence over significant areas of Israel. But as far as we know, that did not extend to the south toward Hebron. And so here is an area that was as far as we know, <clears throat> undisturbed by the Philistines. And so it would make sense then that David would want to go into this area. Remember, David was fighting for the cities of southern Judah, unbeknownst to the Philistines. And so this was a, a rather free zone, so to speak. Um, and it's quite possible that the Philistines didn't see David as much of a threat at this point. He was there, right, friend of the king of Gath. He was in Ziklag. Uh, The people liked David to some degree, Um, so maybe they didn't see him as much of a threat at this point. Furthermore, a divided Israel was good for Philistia. And as we see in the next section, obviously Israel was divided, at least initially uh, when David became king. All right, so a number of thoughts here uh, to, to... Join with what came before and also to set the stage uh, here. Now, um, let's look at verse 2. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. All right, now, the first and the most important point here is David obeys. He asks God what to do. God tells him what to do. David does it. Seems pretty obvious, pretty straightforward. Saul didn't do that so often, did he? Right from the beginning, we see a contrast. Now, as we know, David is far from perfect. But here at the beginning, we see a stark contrast with David versus Saul. But uh, we also see right from the beginning that David isn't perfect because he has two wives We'll talk more about that uh, here uh, later on. Uh, But at this point, note it says that he brought his two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail. As I just mentioned, Jezreel is one of the villages surrounding Hebron, Carmel about seven miles further south. Um, 
And so to, to bring his wives there is kind of like coming home, especially for Ahinoam. Um, but remember, David had another wife. And that, of course, was Michael, who was taken from him by Saul and given to someone else. And so we'll return to this point also at a later passage. All right, verse 3 then. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. So they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. All right, now, <clears throat> rather benign verse here. But think about this. David had, at this point, 600 men plus their households. Okay. Can you imagine that many people coming to Harrisville? Or even Grove City? 600 men plus their families. You figure that's going to be, at minimum, 1,000, 1,200 people? We don't know how many children these men had. You know, David just has himself and his wives. He doesn't have any children yet. Even if half of the men were only married and didn't have children yet, still, if the other half had two, three, five, seven children... I mean, you could be easily talking two or 3,000 people, okay, possibly more. And so imagine, um, and we can't imagine, can't we? We have illegal immigrants today invading communities. Okay, there's a massive community being built in Texas. I don't know if you've heard about this, but they're, they're figuring it's over 100,000 right now. Uh, but can you imagine uh, a, a Two to 3,000 people possibly coming to Harrisville and saying, hey, we're going to live here now. That would be a total change. Yet, Hebron knew David and his men. And so they weren't strangers. And as I just said, God told them to do it. And so if anybody objected, there you go. We have God's word in this way. And so um, the other good thing about Hebron is because it was a Levitical city and because it was a city of refuge, it was bigger, it had more opportunities in terms of space and size, food and water and so on. I just mentioned about all the springs. And so God didn't send them to a place that would have been totally taxing on the community, but actually could uh, support David and his men. And so though some may have thought it as a kind of invasion, God's word is uh, what dominates here. And we should not see it in that way. And so here comes David, obeying God, settling in one of, if not the most important city in all of Israel at this point. And he's going to be anointed king, as we'll see. All right, a couple of last thoughts here in this way. First of all, notice David leaves Ziklag behind. There's no pining after uh, where he was or anything like that. Remember, Ziklag had been burned to the ground and and so on. So uh, we have that aspect. But primarily, David was in Philistia and Ziklag because of Saul. Saul's gone. And so he has no ties left in Philistia. And he moves. And, uh, of course, we'll see more of this as we go along. All right, now, the other thing then is uh, back to some of what I was saying before, and that is David had the promises given to him 
even 15 years before. He was anointed by Samuel. He had many reassurances along the way. Jonathan encouraged him. Gad and Abiathar were with him, encouraging him. Others, and of course the Holy Spirit was with David and so on. And so David has all of this, and he's waiting. He is persevering in his waiting. But now that it is time, he doesn't presume. He is still seeking God's guidance. Now, obviously, there are not connections between us and David because he is king and we're not. But we are a kingdom of priests. And David is a believer just like we are. And so there are connections. We have promises given to us too. Not the exact same promises, but in some ways, even better promises. We have the scriptures. We have many encouragements. We too have the same spirit that was given to David. We have fellow believers that can encourage us. I am not a prophet like Gad, but I am a prophet that has been given to you. And obviously we have Jesus as our high priest. And so... In the same way, then, we should be encouraged. We should have confidence to do what God wants us to do. And yet, let's not presume, let's not be prideful about this. Let us humbly seek God's guidance and what he would have us to do in our lives when we make decisions. We don't need to rely on dice. We can rely on God leading us through his word and so forth. Surely this is true when it comes to big decisions in our lives, but even in our daily decisions, we have the confidence that God is going to lead us as his people in the way he wants us to go. That can be easy to say when everything is going well, and when decision making seems to be pretty easy, but it can be very difficult when the way is dark, when we're not sure what we should do. But remember, The same God that led David here is our God. The same spirit in David is the same spirit that we have. The same promises, at least broadly speaking, are the ones that we have too. And so um, let's learn from David in this way. Let's seek after the Lord and rest in him to lead and guide us in the ways that we need to go. All right. Well, let's turn to verse 4 then. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. All right, we'll look at the first part of the verse here for now. Um, Obviously, it ties in with what we've just seen. And so David here now is anointed king in Judah. Now, of course, David was already anointed by Samuel 15 years ago, but now he is anointed in this way. So let's go back to chapter 16 of 1 Samuel and just reread these verses briefly again. And of course, you remember the story. Uh, Samuel was told to go anoint, and he was concerned about Saul killing him and such, right? So you take uh, the heifer and sacrifice and so on. And he comes to Jesse's house and says, you know, bring your sons and so on. And of course, God doesn't pick any one of them. Well, do you have any more? Well, yeah, David's out in the field, so go get David. All right, so verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. 
And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose and went to Ramah. And so this anointing, when David was 15 years old, it took place now when he's 30 years old, again, give or take a little bit. Um, he is now anointed uh, here by the men of Judah. And so you might say he was king-elect, now he is actually king. God had chosen David, now the men of Judah choose David. Okay. <clears throat> Let's turn also to 1 Samuel chapter 30, and just to um, give a little narrative to these words in this way. At the end of the chapter... After David had defeated the Amalekites and returned all his people and property and so forth. In verses 26 and following, okay, don't get stuck on how to pronounce these names. Don't get all upset because we don't know where some of the places are. Listen to the, if you will, tangible real-lifeness of these words. Verse 26, now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah to his friends, saying... Here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. To those who are in Bethel, those who are in Ramoth of the south, those who are in Jatir, those who are in Aroer, those who are in Shifmoth, those who are in Eshtemoah, those who are in Rakal, those who are in the cities of the Jeramalites, uh, those who are in the cities of the Kenites, those who are in Horma, those who are in Korshon, those who are in Athok, those who are in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. All right, now if you look at your map here again, at least on this map of the land of the 12 tribes, you see Horma there, and it's south of Hebron, about as far farther as Jerusalem is north of Hebron. Uh, but this is the, the basic area uh, where David had sent the spoil. Well, now the elders of Judah certainly from these cities and towns and villages and maybe uh, uh, many others, they now come and set apart David as their king. And you can understand why they'd be so encouraged to do so. David has been one of their friends. He's been with them. He's helped them. He's protected them. It makes sense. And so they establish David as king here in the south. And so the private anointing, done by Samuel, is now very public. Okay. Now, at least on this map, you also see Simeon in the midst of Judah. And it's very likely that Simeon, which was absorbed into Judah, was a part of this too. And so with David being from Judah and Philistines controlling parts of Israel, <clears throat> with the loyalists of Saul being to the north, only being king over part of Israel makes a lot of sense. At this point, there are no Ziphites, there are no Nabals to oppose David, at least here in Judah. Now, two thoughts here to develop briefly. <clears throat> First of all, notice, of course, that David starts in a small way. We could even back up. He started by running for his life for at least part of those 15 years. And now, even as he's established as king... It's not over all of Israel. It's only over a small part. Again, if you're looking at your map, do you see Judah and Simeon 
Look how much more of Israel there is to the north and even to the east. There's a lot of Israel David is not ruling over. And yet, this is where God tells David to go and where to begin. God's ways sometimes make no sense. We're running for our lives, as it were, for 15 years. It doesn't make sense to us sometimes. But God's in control and knows what he's doing. And even then, when we, we do step forward and he wants us to go in a certain direction, sometimes it's rather small. It's not all that significant in the eyes of the world. But our goal here is to trust him. Saul didn't do that. David did. We are to obey him. We are to serve him in the ways and the places where he's called us to be. David does that. Saul doesn't. Now, God may expand, and certainly with David, he does. He eventually rules over all Israel. He may not do that with us. He may keep us in a rather small place, and that's fine. Follow him. Do what God wants. That is what is most significant. Um, and a related idea here then is this God's ways may take a long time David had been waiting for 15 years now he finally has his opportunity this is often the case in our lives too we're praying for things and it just never seems to go anywhere God's ways typically take place over years. God doesn't have a microwave approach to life. He, you know, type in 30 seconds and there's your food or whatever. God typically works over long periods of time, years even. Think of Abraham. He never saw the promises fulfilled in his lifetime, not in their fullness. And oftentimes that is true in our lives. And so God was teaching David to be patient for those 15 years. And now you might say he's teaching David to be patient even more. It's just Judah at this point. It's not all of Israel. And it's going to be seven and a half years before he gets to Jerusalem. And so this long-term, you might say, way of the Lord, the way he works with us slowly, It teaches us to trust him. It teaches us to rest in his promises. It teaches us that God's way is best. But like Saul, he couldn't wait for a few days and he sacrificed because Samuel didn't show up in time. Again, you see the contrast here. It's very intentional. And so simply... Let us follow in the footsteps of David, at least here, not when we get to chapter 11, (laughs) but at least here, follow in David's footsteps, not in Saul's. All right, well, uh, a few thoughts here from uh, these verses. Now let's look at the rest of verse 5, which takes us down through verse 7, or excuse me, verse 4, and then through verse 7. Uh, So the rest of verse 4, and they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. All right, so word had spread. Uh, And so the people in Judah now knew about what the men of Jabesh-Gilead had done. Presumably, David didn't know anything about this yet. And it would make sense that he hadn't uh, at this point. 
um, but now they tell him. So let's uh, refresh our memory on these verses. Let's turn back to chapter 31 and uh, 1 Samuel, and in verses 11 to 13. <clears throat> now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Eshon. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the Tamar's tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. Let's also turn back to chapter 11 here briefly. And uh, you recall that basically the first thing that Saul does um, after he is anointed is he goes and saves Jabesh Gilead. Remember Nachash, the Ammonite, how they came against uh, the men of Jabesh Gilead and the the people of the east. And um, they asked for help. Nobody was going to come, but Saul does. And he rescues them and so on. And so you have that that Saul did. And now the men of Jabesh Gilead, in essence, repay Saul for his kindness. And now David is going to respond to what these men of Jabesh Gilead had done. Now, one more point. You remember that Saul's heritage connects with Jabesh Gilead. Remember all the Benjamites that were killed and such, and they repopulated Benjamin and so forth? Well, Saul was part of that repopulation effort. And uh, so there's the the, uh, family connection with Jabesh Gilead there, too. All right, so back here then in our text, verse 5. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. All right, first of all, notice that David sends messengers. Now, it may simply be because David is king and he's busy now in Hebron to do other things. Um, But I'm inclined to think that it had more to do with the fact that... um, it's probably not the best idea for David to travel to Jabesh Gilead at this point. To travel to Saul's best friends wearing Saul's crown probably was not such a great idea. Now, granted, God would have protected him, but it's probably safe to say that David is thinking something along these lines. Um, maybe it would be more true If David would have gone, and he probably would have gone with other people, they may have perceived this as an attack. And so David sends emissaries. He doesn't come riding in on a horse or even a donkey or anything like that, right? And so he didn't want to send any message that he was going to attack them. And so um, the different suggestions that people have given, I'm inclined to think of this attack scenario Uh, is maybe the best one. But whatever the case, uh, David sends people. And notice what he does. Do you see how David is acting like Paul says the magistrate is supposed to act? In Romans 13 and Peter and 1 Peter 2, they are to punish the evildoer. David did that with the Amalekite. And they're to praise those who do good. David's doing that here, isn't he? He's praising the men of Jabesh Gilead, just like the magistrate who serves the Lord is supposed to do. And so he's praising these men for the good thing they did for Saul. Now note the language that's used here. The New King James uh, translates the word as kindness. You have shown this kindness to your Lord. Um, 
That's the Hebrew word hesed. So he's saying you have shown loyalty, covenant loyalty, covenant love to Saul. Okay, it's a significant word. Not just you're being kind, this, this was a nice thing to do, but no, this is a covenant. Again, remember, think of what Saul did to help them back in chapter 11. So then in verse 6, And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. And so two things here in this verse. David, first of all, blesses them. Okay? He calls on the covenant Lord, Yahweh, to show covenant love, as is the word hesed again, and faithfulness, truthfulness. This is the other Hebrew word, emeth, that we've talked about at other times. And so David is wanting God to show these covenant blessings to these men of Jabesh Gilead for what they had done. God wants them, basically, or excuse me, David wants God to reward them with many good things. And so with the covenant terms, appealing to the covenant of the Lord, Basically, he's calling on God to fulfill his promises to these men. But then David also says, I'm going to do something. And it's, it's stated uh, with some emphasis here. I also will repay you this kindness, that pronoun's repeated. I, I will do this. And so he's not just wanting God to do it. He is going to reward them. Now, there is a difference here. The New King James translates two different words the same way. In the previous two verses, we have kindness, which is the Hebrew word hesed. This word for kindness is a different Hebrew word. It's the word for good or goodness. So then, why the difference? Um, Should we treat them as mere synonyms? Well, um, some have suggested David is talking about a treaty of friendship here. And and so David doesn't have a covenant with them yet. And so that's why he's using a different term. Um, Others have suggested that David is leaving the covenant terms to Yahweh. And he's using a different term as the king. Because as the king, he's not God. And he's making a distinction here. Again, it may seem somewhat strange to us with our representative uh, government. But, you know, historically, most rulers have thought themselves as God, and he may even called themselves a God and so on, but David is he's keeping his distance in this way. Um, whatever the case, you see how David is showing us the right way to rule. He is rewarding those who do good, but he is not taking God's place. David is very different from Saul in this way. Compare this to what we saw in chapter 1 and how David treated the Amalekite. And you see the common thread. He treated the Amalekite the way he did because of how the Amalekite treated Saul. Now David is treating the men of Jabesh Gilead for how they treated Saul. And so you see the contrast. All right, so then verse 7. Now therefore let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. All right. First of all, David obviously acknowledges Saul's death. 
um, but then communicates that he is king in Judah. So the first point is, do you see how he's encouraging the men? Okay. He might say, right, I'm sending my condolences. Okay. I am mourning with you. Maybe the lament that David wrote in chapter 1 went with these men to the men of Jabesh Gilead. Okay. Certainly not out of the question. But David is mourning with them. But then notice, when he says that he is king, he doesn't say it like this. I'm king, follow me now. (laughs) No, he's showing respect for Saul. He's trying to build bridges, you might say. Again, the author's saying, look, David's not the bad guy. But David is seeking support here. You might say this is a political move. Yes, that's part of it. That's not all that it is, but it is part of it. If the men of Jabesh Gilead, relatives of Saul, okay, big supporters of Saul, if they would join with David, this would help unite all of Israel. And if they would have, maybe David would have ruled in Jerusalem, not in seven and a half years, but in a shorter amount of time. Because no answer is given to this here in verse 7, and we immediately go to Ishbosheth in verses 8 and following. The implication is the men of Jabesh Gilead do not join with David at this point. Okay. But do you see how David is saying to them, I'm going to be like Saul was to you. Saul was good to these men. David will do the same. He will not be a tyrant, he will not hold grudges, he will not harm them. He will seek to unite the opposing parties. Again, you see the defense of David ideas that are here. Now, obviously, when we're talking about leadership here on this kind of level, our immediate application has to do with people in positions of leadership on the government national kind of level. And certainly, we live in a society where all kinds of people say, yes, I will unite America. And we're hearing all these people campaigning for president. Um, but very few of them do, of course. But we can make these points of application in our churches, in our families, at work, at school. Okay? There are many things for us to learn from David, even if we're not going to be king of the nation. Okay? <clears throat> We are, in a sense, kings in our homes as men. Uh, We can be a king in a small way in other ways, elders in the church, and, uh, and so on and so forth. But even if we're not a king and we're just a, uh, an official in government, so to speak, okay, do you see what David is doing? He is seeking after the Lord. He is trusting in him. He is not asserting himself. He is seeking to be godly in all these different ways that we've talked about tonight. Let's seek to do the same thing as a kingdom of priests. Let us seek to follow in David's footsteps in this way. All right, well, we'll end there tonight, and we'll pick up with the other king in Israel next time. Our Father and our God, we thank you again for your word. And... um, we are so thankful for uh, how you put these principles in story form for us. And uh, uh, we thank you for the, uh, the word made flesh in the sense of uh, this uh, story with David and, 
and, and how it helps us to see uh, the principles of loving our enemies and uh, doing go- good to those who have harmed you and, and not trying to take matters into our own hands. You know, all these principles that we see in the scriptures, we see played out here. And we thank you for that. And so, Lord, help us uh, to, to walk in the footsteps of David as he walked um, before you uh, to honor you. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would help us, especially those of us who are in positions of leadership. Uh, we pray that you would help us to, 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 to do as David did and not act like the world and lord our power and authority over others. And so, Lord, we pray for your mercies in this way. And we thank you again, most of all, uh, that um, David was not perfect. And this points us to you, our true king, and the one we should emulate most of all. And so we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.